Well, summer's upon us. For many of you, that means uh, the kids are home from school, or maybe you're a teacher or an instructor, and now there's maybe a little bit more flexibility. What are you looking forward to for this summer? What are you excited about? Is it seeing your kids or your grandkids? Is it a trip? Is it an opportunity that you have? What are you really looking forward to? What is that thing that really brings you excitement and joy? I think it's appropriate for us to hold on to those things and aspire to those things. And it's one thing to to talk about them. But it's another thing for us to hold on to those desires, those aspirations for this summer in a week like what we've experienced last week. And we've already hit this, but we need to not miss this opportunity. Another scandal in a major religious institution. Another senseless act of violence where innocent people died. Violence, abuse, neglect, evil. We are reminded again of the fallenness, the fragility of the world in which we're living in that at times feels as though it's spinning out of control. We, we long for joy. Is joy even possible amidst these experiences that we see around the world and that we're not even talking about the things in our own hearts that we're struggling with, right? I'm so excited to begin our series in the book of Philippians because Paul wrote this letter to us and to this little town, this little church in Greece called Philippi. It's the name of the city. And he wrote this book to encourage them while he was in prison. Lest we think that Paul wrote this book in some sort of comfortable environment, he was in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel, and he couldn't help but encourage and love these brothers and sisters that he knew really well in Philippi. So whatever you're experiencing, this book is so applicable to our moment, is it not? We need joy, but we don't need another vacation or just to see the grandkids again or a new car, or whatever the thing is, the trip out west. We need a joy that is going to actually hold on to us amidst trials and tears and sorrow. So with that, let's look at Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent 
And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Will you pray with me, please? Dear Heavenly Father, how I long to have the kind of joy that Paul has even amidst circumstances that are uncomfortable and scary and trying. Lord, we need that joy this morning and we need to hear from your Holy Spirit from the scriptures. We need to be encouraged and built up. We need to be challenged in some specific ways. Oh, Lord, please send your spirit to be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have any of you ever heard of the Badwater Ultra Marathon? Anyone ever heard of that one? It's a 135-mile foot race. And you run that, those 135 miles appropriately in heat that is at times 135 degrees. You start at 282 feet below sea level, and then you climb and end at 8,300 feet above sea level. Did y'all hear me? 135 miles on foot. There are a lot of people that start this race. This is on the bucket list for people that are marathoners or ultra people. And a lot of people start this thing. A lot. Very, very few people finish it. And it's just one of those things that it will basically take, a, take it, everything out of you. When we're looking at this passage right here, there's a verse that stands out in many ways. It's kind of like a motto or a theme of the book. And it's in, it's in verse 6. And Paul says this to this little church. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, the Christian faith a lot of times is described as an arduous race. The race of faith. And there are times in our races and in our moments that we wonder, am I going to be able to finish? Like, this feels so overwhelming. My circumstances are weighing me down. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's a personal struggle. Maybe it's something going on with your family. Who knows what it is? We need to be reminded that it's God who is the one who is at work. He's the one that always finishes what he starts. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So I want us to look specifically as we're, as Paul is opening his book and opening his letter to the church in Philippi. I want to look at two specific areas that Paul highlights of where we see God at work. The first area that we see is in verses one to two, God is at work through people. I think it's common, maybe if you've gone through your Bible reading plan, that every time the letter begins and they do like the greetings and salutations, grace and peace, to kind of skip over that and kind of move on to the meat. I don't want us to do that. All of this actually has a meaning because Paul knows these people. Notice who the authors are. It's the Apostle Paul. It's um, a man that had a Harvard education. He had a strong Jewish background. He really was an anti-Christian guy. He thought Jesus had it all wrong. And yet he is radically confronted on the road to Damascus. And his life is turned upside down. Notice who's with him. Timothy, 
who um, was later to be a pastor. He actually was on the original journey when Paul planted the church in Philippi. You can learn about that in Acts chapter 16. Timothy had a, had a Greek father and a Jewish mother. So you have these interesting dynamics. Timothy was a young man. Paul was an old man. This couple, these two people, kind of a father and son pair, are the ones that are authoring this. Notice what they're called. They're called slaves of Christ. Paul doesn't mention that he's an apostle. He certainly was an apostle. Timothy doesn't uh, feel the need to describe his resume or what he's done. We're simply slaves of Christ. The utmost humility This is setting the stage for this entire book, which focuses on the humility of Jesus. But also, what do we notice? We also notice that they are writing this to all the saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. This is the word for all the holy ones. Not just the Jewish people. But all those that have been rescued and saved by God's grace. Sometimes in our culture, we hear the word saint. We, we tend to think about those, that special group of people that did amazingly powerful things for God. And they have, they're on this special short list. But actually what Paul is trying to communicate is to all the saints. Meaning all the Christians. All, the, all those that are looking to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And notice who else is addressed. Not just the saints. With the overseers and the deacons. This is talking about those two offices of the church. We did a sermon series on that earlier this summer. That the overseers or the elders are those that are called to be the shepherds and the teachers and teaching God's word. The deacons are those lead servants, the people behind the scenes caring for those tangible needs. Paul addresses all the Christians, all the saints and the specific officers here in the local church. But notice it's in Christ Jesus The word joy is found in the book of Philippians 15 times. But the word in Christ, that phrase, is found 20 times. This is Paul's favorite way of describing our union with Christ. All of the benefits of the work of Jesus, his his substitutionary death on the cross, uh, us receiving his righteousness, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit... All of these are the benefits that we receive in Christ, that we are connected to Jesus, that when he died on the cross, we as his body died with him. When he was raised, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, we were also raised with him. All of these benefits. This is not a little throwaway line like in Christ, in Christ. It's important. This is the key. This is the way that we actually receive the life-giving power to fight and to follow Christ here. These are those holy ones in Christ Jesus Crossing every barrier and boundary, every side of the track, united in Christ. Grace and peace is how they're greeted. That gift that brings us peace with God. Do you know much about these saints that Paul is writing this letter to? Again, if you, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to look at them, uh, open up to Acts chapter 16 and you can learn. Let me tell you just a little bit about these saints because it provides a beautiful picture. When Paul and Timothy and probably Luke, who authored Acts um, and Silas, were on their missionary journey, they really wanted to go to Asia. And for some reason, God didn't allow them to go there. And instead, they received a vision And he was called the man of Macedonia. Macedonia is just another word for the the Greek area. 
And they've received a vision. And that man from Macedonia says, come, come and help us. And so Paul and all of his travelers, this is 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, go on that journey. And this is the very first time the gospel of Jesus Christ goes to Europe. Do you know, look around at the people. We all look different. We sound different. We're different ages, different backgrounds. All of us are direct beneficiaries of Paul's mission trip to Macedonia in Acts chapter 16. This is where the gospel first goes to Europe, friends. This is huge. And who does Paul meet? Well, his typical custom was to go to the synagogue. Well, there's no synagogue. That means that there's less than 10 Jewish men that can gather together to form a synagogue. So Paul and his, and his band of travelers decide, you know what? Let's go to the riverside. We hear that there's some women gathering together for praying. And he goes to those women who are praying together. And it says that they share the gospel. And there's a woman named Lydia that they met there. She's from this town in Thyatira. Thyatira is actually in Asia. She's a dealer in purple, meaning she was a wealthy businesswoman. She had a house in Philippi, a pretty substantial house, and that she hears the gospel. The Lord opens her heart to believe, and she is baptized, her and her household. So then after that, Paul meets somebody else. But this person that he doesn't really want to meet is, is not quite as uh, professional, not quite as uh, maybe as wealthy and influential as Lydia, who is very successful. This time, he meets a woman who is a slave girl. And this slave girl is actually, she's demon-possessed. She's mocking uh, Paul and all the followers. And, and what they're saying is, these, this, this woman says, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Day after day, day after day. And then the, the demon is removed from her. She is set free. But because she was a slave, her slave owners would use her to do fortune-telling. The, the, the slave owner was furious. And so he basically caused a conflict. Paul and all of his travelers are beat and thrown into jail. But this woman is set free. Is she sitting in the pews on a Sunday? Was she a believer? Did she join the church? We have no idea. But it's very clear. We need to remember that this slave girl was radically changed by the power of Jesus. While they're in prison, it says that Paul and his followers were singing hymns at midnight while they were in, in stocks and in chains. And then there's an earthquake that happens. And all of the chains are released. All of the doors are opened. And then there's a Philippian jailer. Most jailers were retired military. This guy would have been a tough guy, blue collar, you know, I want to get stuff done kind of guy. And he knows if those, if those prisoners get out, he's done. And Paul says, don't worry, we are all here. We're not going anywhere. He's about to take his own life. And Paul says, no. And instead, he asks this question, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. He says he was baptized that very night, he and his family. Why did I just give us that history lesson on Acts chapter 16? Because those are the people that are receiving the letter of Philippians. You've got a retired military, blue-collar jailer, a wealthy, competent woman named Lydia who is a dealer in purple. Maybe the slave girl was there. 
The bottom line is you have a lot of people from different backgrounds and different experiences and different ages, but they are bound together in Jesus Christ. And Paul knew these people well. I simply want to give one application about this. God uses ordinary people. You don't have to be a superstar. You don't have to know a lot about the Bible. God is at work and he uses real people. He uses the relationships you have, the people on your street, the people at your school, the people that your family knows. He is using you. Paul, his plan was not to go to Europe, remember? He was going to go to Asia. And yet God called him to go to Europe. Who are the people that God has put in front of you? Maybe, oh, Justin, I'm not an evangelist. I understand that. It's hard. It's difficult. But can you just move toward someone and say, I bet she needs a friend. I bet he needs some encouragement. God is at work and he uses the little things and the little conversations that we have because God loves to use his people. But secondly, point number two is that God not only uses people, God also uses prayer. There's two examples of prayer that we see in these verses. In verses 3 to 8, Paul gives a prayer of thanks. And verses 9 through 11 is a prayer for spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So look at this prayer of thanks. Where do we see gratitude and thankfulness here? Notice that there's a partnership in the gospel, he says in verse 5, from the first day until now. This is the word that we would typically translate as fellowship. And fellowship is one of those beautiful words that's all over the Bible, but it means so much more than the coffee and the donut hour just before the worship service. Fellowship was actually the common phrase that business people would use to describe their financial partnership. Hey, we're all in this together. If this ship goes down, we're going together. It's a tight bond. Fellowship, partnership. And Paul, while he's in prison, is saying, hey, church at Philippi, you have given so much to help me. I've been all over the world sharing the gospel, helping to plant churches, and your financial generosity has made an impact because we are in a partnership with one another. That's what Paul's saying. But not only do we learn, we'll learn later that this partnership in the gospel isn't just about finances, it's also about people. This church actually sent this guy, Epaphroditus, to come and be an encouragement to Paul while he was in prison. Have you ever been going through such a hard time and so discouraged and someone just shows up at your house or maybe, you know, gives you a phone call? You know the power that that makes, the encouragement that is. This little church in Philippi and Paul and Timothy had a tight bond and a relationship and, and Paul was so thankful for all that they had done. But notice also... This partnership also leads to a confidence. I've already referred to this in verse 6 that Paul writes, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Notice who begins the work. God is the one who begins the work. And I think Paul is getting at not only individual believers that God saves you, but he's also talking corporately about this church. Hey, God is the one that began this work in this church. God is the church planter. God has already been at work in that little area of Philippi long before Paul ever got there. God is the one who initiates the work. And notice who is the one who completes the work. God is the one who grows us. We can't save ourselves. We can't even grow ourselves. The church knew that it was always God's grace from A to Z. 
Yes, we participate through our prayers, through following Christ, but we don't grow ourselves. God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who grows us. And he grew this little church in Europe. And look at us. We would not be here had this church not faithfully proclaimed Jesus Christ, even when it hurt and even when it cost them. You see, gratitude and thanks is what drove them to give back. They weren't doing this to pay off God or to try to be impressive. They had been so gripped by God's grace. Lydia had her heart open to believe the gospel. The Philippian jailer had been radically changed by Jesus. How could they not invest to share that good news of Jesus and everything that they're doing? It's not about trying to earn brownie points with God. It's about responding in gratitude and thanks to what God has done. Young people, old people, different languages, different cultures and backgrounds, different classes of people, all are needed for God's work. And he uses all of our gifts. Notice also in verses 7 to 8 the deep personal affection that we see in Paul's prayer of thanks. Some of us maybe who are more thinker, you're like, man, Paul's really kind of going on and on on, on his emotions. It might be good for you to check this out. This was the Apostle Paul. He says this, It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Feel. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. That word partakers um, is one of those made-up words. It actually literally is fellow fellowshipper. It's the tightest bond of fellowship. The tightest partnership possible. You are partakers with me of what? Of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you. That could also be translated pant, like a deer pants for streams of water. Paul is saying, that's how much I love you. Because the bond that we have is not about social class or politics or what football team you cheer for or how much money you make or whether you have a PhD or whether you have a GED. It's about Jesus. And that's what binds us together. And that's why I love you. I care so much about you. I just find that so encouraging when I walk around Rockbridge County and see the young and the old and, and different classes and backgrounds. It's so easy to define ourselves by these other things and to get into squabbles and misunderstanding for us to understand that our identity is in what Jesus Christ has done. That is the bond that we have as this church. And we're going to have to work hard to make sure that is the main thing, the work of Jesus. We have this beautiful picture here in the book of Philippians. Notice that deep affection. You will never know the impact, friends, that encouragement makes on another person. You have no idea the impact when you walk out of this church service this morning and you pull somebody aside and you encourage her and you encourage him. That might seem a little bit uncomfortable. You never know what people are going through. And Paul wants to encourage his brothers and sisters in Christ while he's in jail because he loves them. Because God's grace has supernaturally changed them. But we also see not only this prayer of thanks, we also see a prayer for growth. Verses 9 through 11. He says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and the praise of God. Here's the summary of that prayer. I want you to grow. 
Whoa, 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 Justin, I thought you just said God is the one that begins the work and God is the one who completes it. Yeah, but we're called to participate in that. Like, I just tried, I just planted some tomatoes. I just planted some peppers. Who knows if they're going to turn out? But it took work. But I don't get to make the plants grow. But we're called to participate. We're called to be intentional. We're called to pray for our missionaries. We're called to support the work of Young Life and RUF and Rafiki. Because God uses our contributions. He uses our gifts. And notice that Paul's prayer is I want you to grow and abound in love. Notice not just one kind of love. It's a specific, a love in knowledge and depth of insight. Meaning I want you to not just love in general. I want your love to be, to be shaped by an understanding of how to follow Jesus. To know the scriptures to trust him, to love God and to love others. And this knowledge is paired with discernment. And the angle of this word is moral perception, a moral understanding. It's one thing to know the Bible and to know who Moses is and to know the stories, but do you understand how to follow Jesus? Do you have the wisdom to know how to apply scripture? That's what Paul's getting at, knowledge and discernment. And notice what this results in. Approving what is excellent. This word is the idea that, uh, of testing a metal to see if it's really strong. You put it in the fire, you put it in the forge, and you see what comes up. Approve what is excellent. Trials forge dependency. And that is what makes our relationship with God and other people precious and valuable. So that ultimately... We are filled with the fruit of righteousness. God's grace always goes somewhere. It always has a fruit. God's grace actually teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Fruit always has that initial beginning. I think this is important for us to understand. Is that salvation is not just about professing Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord and then that's it. That's just the beginning. God is committed to growing us. Just like I planted those um, tomatoes and peppers and okra and all that stuff in my garden. But that's just the beginning. The goal of that is later on this summer, I want to have some fruit. I got some pear trees and I'm looking, I'm like, oh man, they're starting. They're, they're, just, they're very small, but I cannot wait to get those pears in September because we want fruit. It takes time though. And we need to be reminded that it's God's grace that allows us to grow. It's God's grace that allows us to bear fruit. It's God's grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness. It's God's grace that empowers us to fight against temptation and doubt and discouragement and cynicism and sorrow and boredom and apathy and fatigue and our frailty. It's God's grace that empowers that. That's the kind of fruit that Paul's getting at. But we got to make sure we get the order straight. God's grace comes to us first. We are saved completely by God's grace. God grows us by his grace and we get to participate in his work of grace. Your habit, your personality, your temperament, your predispositions, those do not have the last word, friends. Those are an element. But God's grace is even more powerful than all of those struggles and realities. We're no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to Christ. 
These are the promises for those who love Jesus. And many times this growth in grace is hard for us to see when we look at ourselves and we look at others. We need to be reminded in this little church in Philippi, a simple, ordinary church, there is nothing big and flashy about it. Ordinary people putting their shoes on one foot at a time, just like us, that God is in the business of using ordinary people, ordinary conversations, ordinary little prayers while you're making a sandwich, while you're getting the kids to school, while you're driving to work to accomplish his kingdom work. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, and civilization, these are mortal, and their life is ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy. No superiority, no presumption. Paul loved this group of ordinary people who were from all walks of life, from every side of the track, every different age group, but they were bound together through the work of Jesus Christ. As we march through the book of Philippians this summer, I hope that you will consider following Christ, maybe for the first time, or maybe even seek to follow him even more closely. While it is God's grace from A to Z, we get to participate and he uses us because he is the one who is at work. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are the one who is at work and that you're faithful and that you use people like Lydia, the businesswoman. You use the Philippian jailer to accomplish your kingdom goals. Wherever you have called us, Lord, let us not compare ourselves, but let us be ourselves and use the gifts and the opportunities that you have given us. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.